can lose, can lose, can lose. And that is literally all that's in my head. Unexpected. Hello and welcome to another socially distant episode of Grape Culture, the podcast where three women drink alcohol and talk about things and stuff. I'm Sam. I'm Kim. And I'm Alex. (laughs) And welcome to the episode. On this week's episode of Grape Culture, we are talking about the book Sword Stone Table, which is a collection of Arthurian myths that have been retold at various points throughout history and from various different uh, voices. So it's not just King Arthur or the usual people that you might expect. But before we start talking about that, we have some drinks to talk about. So Kim, what have you got this week? I have the Gaelic or Gallic Rouge off of Sainsbury's. Is that how you pronounce it? I was more concerned by the fact it looked like it had sharp dicks on it. (laughs) (laughs) The reason that I chose this is a couple of reasons, but it was mostly all to do with the label. Um, When I looked at it, I thought that it looked both royal and futuristic, which, so the book that we're talking about is, there are, there is an element of it that is set in a, in a more futuristic retelling. Um, it's obviously all centred around King Arthur and the Arthurian legend of folklore, which is, is quite royal. And there is a connection between sort of King Arthur and, and those legends and the sort of Welsh, English, French medieval period and all the kind of crossover that that had so that's what made me think of it and then also the color scheme of the uh bottle is purple and gold which um the color scheme of the book is kind of purple and and purple and silvery and it just kind of all as soon as i saw it i was like that's definitely the wine but it was it was very much a feeling more than anything else tangential but there was thought there so this is a French red wine. It is fruity and smooth, rich and spicy with blackberry flavours, um, pairs well with grilled red meat and creamy pasta dishes. This deeply coloured, fruity and smooth red is beautifully perfumed and packed full of bold flavours, juicy blackberry, rich cassis and a lovely peppery spice. Gaelac is one of the oldest wine regions, I've said it differently every time, in <laughs> case that wasn't obvious, um, is one of the oldest wine regions with evidence of winemaking dating back to pre-Roman times, um, located just northeast of Toulouse in southwest France, it is, its hot, sunny Mediterranean climate is tempered by cooling Atlantic influences, making it perfect for growing grapes. This red is a blend of five grape varieties, including two of which are indigenous to the region, Bracol and Duras. This elegant red makes a great match for char-grilled red meats, stews and sausages. So yeah, it just, it felt very appropriate to that kind of not quite in a real time, time period that Arthur has and the, the not quite in a real place thing that it has as well. A lot of people claim King Arthur. Um, so yeah, that's what I went for. Sounds like a good match. Good, good selection. Yes, and I do like the bottle, I mean, and it's sharp dicks upon. Yes, um, <laughs> the bottle does also look like sharp dicks, or a sword, like archways, <laughs> yeah, or a sword, or like archways of a cathedral, like vaulted palace type thing. I thought Three. it looked quite like architectural. Three types of people in this world: architectural, <laughs> sculpture, sword. sword, and sharp dick. <laughs> Good. And mine doesn't even have like an adjective to like preface it. It's sword. sword. <laughs> it's a very aggressive sword, clearly. <laughs> well, it links to the story slightly. Exactly. So that's my wine. Sam, what have you got? What have I got? So I have the Folklore Tinto Peninsula 2019, which I think is Spanish. That sounds Spanish. Yeah. Producto de España. Uh, <laughs> Sounds like a Harry Potter spell. It it does. It does. Producto certainly does. So yes, it is. Uh, I bought it because 
folklore and King Arthur, and I thought it was about the most literal version I could find on the Sunday Times website. It has it has balls on it, uh, so that's nice. I don't know uh, what balls, balls, not a not balls, not ball to no. go with my cock wine. No. Got balls no, we, wine. <laughs> we've got cock and bull wine. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so the tasting notes are. For a moment there, I thought they were in Spanish. I think I'm having a stroke. <laughs> They're in English. <laughs> just can't read so uh it's the uh folklore tinto peninsula pays homage to the tales and traditions of old spain and is typical of the enduring style for which spanish wines are renowned doesn't mean anything just words it has intense aromas of ripe red currant and raspberry mingled with chocolate blueberry and black pepper spice the persistent well-rounded palate offers equally ripe succulent berry fruit flavors which make folklore the ideal partner for tapas and meat rice and pasta based dishes so all dishes all food all food all the time Um, blueberry notes is interesting you don't get a lot of blueberry notes no it it sounds a bit muffiny this one chocolate and blueberry (laughs) could be really nice Um, delicious could be delicious smells all right We'll see what happens. And Alex, you're still uh, on the on the sober drinking, which some would call not drinking, but I don't. Um, what, <laughs> what have you got this week? So I ummed and ahed for a little while thinking, what on earth do I get that goes with Arthurian legend that is non-alcoholic? Because you do think of red wine. You guys have obviously gone down that route or like mead or something along those lines. But Apparently, non-alcoholic mead is hard to come by in your local supermarket. (laughs) So I was thinking about non-alcoholic drink that I've wanted to try or have previously enjoyed. So I have got the Seed Lip non-alcoholic gin, specifically the Grove 42, which is much more kind of orange zesty. Um, And the reason I went for this is because their story and their kind of um, mission statement as a company is to use traditional technique and like old fashioned distilling methods, but to create something completely new. So I thought that obviously went with the book's tagline which is like old legends new voices so um that is what i've gone for and i've got it in a lovely gin glass with some chilled tonic water to make me feel like i'm actually having a gin and tonic that sounds delightful sounds very civilized and i get so i've got the particular one up for the tasting notes and this one is a this is zesty and complex citrus forward blend of three types of orange and uplifting spice simply served with tonic and a sounds, twist of orange sounds quite summery it does on this cold winter rainy evening <laughs> but then, bring the beach to you <laughs> orange is also quite a like wintry it's quite if you think of like christmas mold. and stuff like that yeah Mull away. Mull away. Yeah. So I'm going to enjoy that and feel like I'm partaking in the booze. Looks great. Hope it tastes nice. Good job already, guys. Cheers. Cheers. One of our most well thought out episodes in a while. (laughs) Don't know what you mean. (laughs) Sam, how's yours? Very sharp. Very, very berry y. Uh, I definitely I understand the black pepper and the raspberry and red currant. I'm not convinced by this chocolate business. I'm not getting any chocolate Mm. from this. Although I do feel like it's a big ask to be like Make it all the berries and also chocolate and then savoury things as well. So it's it's quite nice. It's okay. Mid- what about yours, Kim? Um, yeah, the first sip or two were quite in your face. It's now quite mellowed out. It is a C, which is sort of 
medium bodied and i tend to drink a more full-bodied wine so it feels a little bit watery like if i think that's what i mean by in your face it feels like like fruit juice more so than wine but that's not necessarily a bad thing like it I, I can see the Mediterranean side of things and, and um, it's it's quite flavourful because of that, because the, the fruit notes are really sort of front and centre, but it's not quite the uh, oaky spice kind of thing that I tend to like in a red wine and would want on a November evening. So yeah, it's it's all right. I, I probably would have it again so far. We'll see how that goes. Good. So slightly better than average reviews of the wine. <laughs> how is the fake gin? Do you know what? I've strangely managed to make my fake gin too strong. <laughs> I don't know how that's possible. I put too much in it and so it's quite ginny. Um, but it tastes like booze. So that's a winner. That's good. So it's convincingly fake. It's convincingly fake to the point that I was like, oh, strong. Oh, <laughs> I'm going to feel this in the morning. No, you won't. <laughs> No, not at all. Hopefully not, otherwise something's gone wrong. Yeah. Are you sure you're not just drinking gin? (laughs) I mean, I'm a little bit worried I grabbed the wrong bottle off the shelf. (laughs) I'm pretty sure it's fine. Yeah, I'm sure. We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so it sounds good as far as fake gin goes because it tastes like real gin, right? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So should we talk about the book? Yes. Go on then. Brilliant. So once again, we are talking about Swordstone Table, Old Legends, New Voices. This was edited by Swapna Krishna and Jen Northington. The blurb on the back, for anyone who hasn't heard of it, is as such. From the vast lore surrounding King Arthur, Camelot, and the Knights of the Round Table comes an anthology of gender-bent, race-bent, LGBTQIA plus inclusive retellings, featuring stories by Alexander Chi, Preeti Shibber, and then a bunch of other names. I won't read them all. Um, we'll get to them as we talk about them, I'm sure. Here you'll find the Lady of the Lake reimagined as an albino Ugandan sorceress and the Lady of Shalot as a wealthy, isolated woman in futuristic Mexico City. You'll see Excalibur rediscovered as a baseball bat that grants a washed-up minor leaguer a fresh shot at glory and as a lost ceremonial drum that returns to a young First Nations boy the power and dignity of his people. There are stories set in the Gilded Age Midwest, 80s New York, 21st century Singapore and space. There are lesbian lady knights, Arthur and Merlin reborn in the modern era for a second chance at saving the world and falling in love. Even a coffee shop AU. Brave, bold and groundbreaking, the stories in Swordstone Table bring fresh life to beloved myths and give long-timed fans a chance to finally see themselves in their favourite legends. The end. <laughs> Thank you. It's, I think it's, is it 16 stories? It's 16 stories, yes, by actually quite a few big names. I probably should have just read all the names out because there are quite a few there a lot of names that i recognize which was quite exciting it's it does what it says on the tin it is a anthology of arthurian retellings yep opening thoughts (laughs) (laughs) so before we talk about thoughts on the book what how familiar were you guys with uh arthurian tales um in general because it's not something that i to be honest i maybe know three and those three i don't know very well so what what was your input on that? Yeah, I knew very little. I'm sure as people mention some, I might be like, oh, yeah, of course. Obviously, Disney's Sword in the Stone with yep. squirrels <laughs> was one of my faves. When the lady squirrel realises he's not a squirrel is still one of the saddest moments of life. Genuinely heartbreaking. Also, yeah. not the first time we've talked about it on this podcast. I mean, it's, obviously, it stuck it's, with us. It's a pivotal moment in Alex's development. That. It definitely is. 
Um, so I was sad that there were no squirrels present within this anthology. So, uh, you, you know, apart from King Arthur, Round Table, maybe a little bit Lady of the Lake, Merlin, like characters rang more bells than the actual stories. I mean, obviously the stories themselves were taken in a completely different direction. But in terms of the dynamics of the characters, I wasn't as familiar just the names um, and certain references. So I, I was sad when I was, because I listened to it, I was sad when I was listening that I didn't probably get the intricacies of what was being done because I'm sure there was far more that were wasted on me. Uh, yeah, I felt the same in that I was like, I don't really know which story this is meant to be. And then I had to go and look at some of them up. Um, yeah. <laughs> Kim, did you find the same thing? Yeah, very similar. I, I felt like I knew more. And then I started reading it and I was like, oh, I know nothing and tried to look some of them up. And then there's so freaking many of them. And then as I was reading, I was like, no, I do know some of these similar, you know, obviously Sword and Stone, um, The Lady of the Shot, Lady of Shalot by Tennyson. Um, and I kind of just from studying the pre-Raphaelites, there's quite a lot of that in uh, quite a lot of Arthur and the pre-Raphaelites and everything. And then, um, of course, a vague passing knowledge of Arthurian legends from spoofs like Monty Python. Um, and I recently watched The Green Knight. But yeah, same as you, Alex, more figures than stories per se, which I felt... Did I, did I think of you feel a bit bad about that? Like, this is a, this is an anthology ostensibly put together by predominantly American people and made quite American. And it's like, we're supposed to have this kind of national connection and pride to Arthur. And I was like, oh, I know shit all about shit all. It is a, it is a weird kind of gap in our education. I'm sure we must have done various Arthurian bits at some point, but yeah, you'd, you'd think the, the mythical king of England who will come back to save us all would have been more prominent. Taught, yeah, taught a little bit more. Yeah. Why were there so many Elaine's? That's what I, I wanted. I like the coffee shop one baffled me. Look yeah, when it was like Elaine's. Look at all the Elaine's. Here's a list of all the Elaine's. Get better names. Get yeah, more names. I thought Elaine was like someone that you worked with in finance. I didn't realize that. Like, it's quite a Elaine old school name. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, um, the entire time I read it, as mentioned, Monty Python, I had brave Sir Robin bravely runs away, runs away in my head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Monty Python and the Holy Grail is probably the, the, the biggest Arthurian to cultural touchstone for people living in Britain, um, which <laughs> is quite alarming, actually. Yeah, not not a huge amount of knowledge. And I think if you don't know much about Arthur, I think that does hurt you with your enjoyment of this novel, or not novel, this, this anthology, because... Definitely. You spend so much time going, what? Who is that? Yeah. <laughs> Definitely the first few. So the novel, sorry, the anthology is broken up into past, present, future, which I think we'll talk about a bit later on. So there are like three, I think three stories in the past and then most of the stories are in the present and then there's three stories in the future. And it was the past ones in particular that I felt, I think they were the most rooted in the original stories in the sense that they were closest to them. Like they're at the same time period and the same setting. I found those the hardest to get behind because I I felt like I was really I was missing out on something. I was I had a massive gap in my knowledge. Some of the more present ones the present ones lent, I felt, on the more um familiar stories. Like everyone kind of knows about like Excalibur. And I felt like the present ones kind of lent quite heavily on Excalibur or Merlin and Arthur. Whereas the past ones I was I was a lot more lost. And then the future ones 
well over my head except for the lady yeah. of shalot one yeah the, the whole we'll, we'll get there but the whole like re-skinning into another body hempen just so you can d- yeah that was called my hemp uh, white hempen sleeve oh yeah and i was like yeah. i genuinely i was like what the <laughs> fuck is going on i have i have no concept <laughs> of what is happening that Not was the most sci-fi bit as well like it's sci-fi and fantasy quite a lot throughout this and that was the most sci-fi bit which is the part that i struggle with in literature anyway but genuinely that one i was like the fuck is going on the fuck yeah. is this the fuck is that <laughs> yeah it was it was one of the biggest what the fucks but before we talk about the what the fucks were there any stories that you that you really liked so of the sections which are once present future did you each have which were your favourite stories from each section? Is the Bladesmith Queen the one that's where... Once. Yeah, that's... the Bladesmith Queen is in Once, and that is the one with the sexy time in the lake. Yeah, I was here for that. Oh yeah, I was here for the sexy time in the lake. <laughs> that's when it really started for me. Yeah, Hugging on a rock. That, well, yeah. I knew that... So that, that one's by Sarah McLean, who is a romance author um, who I like quite a lot. And I was really looking forward to that story when I saw that she had uh, contributed a story to it. And I was the same, like, got to that point, was like, I'm here for it. Yeah, I definitely, definitely like The Bladesmith Queen. I, I liked one of the ones before, which was Passing Fair and Young by Roshani Chokshi. Chokshi. Sorry, if we're pronouncing that wrong, I did not check the pronunciation before I started talking, which is really wrong of me. Um, but I liked that one, which was the one about choosing your own destiny. And I liked the idea of sort of choosing your own destiny to be like unremarkable, but loved. Um, but definitely the first sort of five, even though they were enjoyable, I didn't really feel like I was in it for this anthology until I got to Sarah McLean, the Bladesmith Queen, which was... yeah. Sexy time on a, on a, in a lake. I mean, the Bladesmith Queen was was the first one that I was like, oh, actually, these are these are enjoyable. The the high medieval. It was. It's not even medieval. It's pre medieval, like mm. early English style. Was not the one. There was that one that was um with a really long title. How after long? How? Fighting, yeah, hope was overcome by large oh yeah, does not. Say, that was awful. I hated it. <laughs> the full <laughs> title was. Go on then. How, after long fighting, Galahort was overcome by Lancelot, yet was not slain and made great speed to yield to friendship, or Galahort, the Knight of the Forfeit, by Daniel M. Lavery. Catchy. Really catchy. I mean... Rolls off the tongue. (laughs) It was short and... Mercifully so. It was was About 80% of it was the title. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's only like 20 minutes on the audiobook. That is the shortest one in the whole thing. It's nine pages. Yeah. It's fuck all. Yeah, I think the problem with the first section was that there were too many stories that were told in that same high early literature style, like back to back. So when it got to the Bladesmith Queen and the one after that, that was or the final story in the section, which was Do By All Due Means, which was the one about, um, I want to call her Britomart, but I feel like that sounds like a supermarket. So I don't actually know how you say her <laughs> I, name. No, That's I how that I said it. Is that? Yeah. Okay, right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Britomart, Safeway, whatever you want to call her. Um, <laughs> that was told in a slightly different tone and it felt more modern and it felt it, like an actual retelling. And it felt like it worked. A- video game mm. <laughs> yeah I it, felt, it felt like the labyrinth it felt very like it was very you know, questy advent- wasn't it That's you know adventure story yeah. with creepy goblin men that it was parts. yeah um la- the labyrinth uh, the princess bride it was that right kind of sarcastic. yeah and i guess maybe it felt a little bit monty pythony in that regard 
Which is probably why we were like... There weren't nearly enough coconut horse sounds, didn't they? There were no knights that said knee either, so kind of offended. Okay, present then. So this was the biggest section, I think. Seven stories? Yeah, um, seven stories. I think all my favourite stories were in this section. Jack and Brad and the Magician made me cry, um, which was by Anthony Rapp and is about a young gay couple's experience of meeting Merlin who is presenting as a magician in the 80s who comes to visit um, AIDS patients on a specific ward. That was super emotional. Um, That was a good one. That was a really good one. And the Once Them and Future Us by Preeti Chiba as well was like really interesting. And I liked, so that was about Merlin being reborn in the modern age um, and meeting with Arthur and um, more Morgana as well um and I liked kind of it felt like both a a retelling of like that love between Merlin and Arthur but for a modern audience but also it felt like a um redemption narrative for Morgana and I liked that it kind of did those two things and did them both well and then there was another one that I liked Heartbeat which was the one that's actually mentioned uh, it I, is mentioned on the blurb of the book definitely which is the about the um first nation boy that finds the ceremonial drum that is excalibur and brings like back the the nation basically um and the pride in their in their heritage and that one felt just really i don't know that felt particularly uh powerful like i could feel my heart sort of swelling with that pride and it felt very true to i think what people want to believe in in arthur like how arthur's supposed to make us as english people feel and it was the first one that really translated that um feeling of like what i think arthur is supposed to make english people feel to a completely different nation and experience uh that i thought was quite unique and special and what i was hoping for from the anthology so probably i would say jack and brad and the magician was my favorite but heartbeat and once them a future us come in the second alex what was your feeling on this yeah i think maybe also the reason we quite liked the blades smith queen in the the once so in the past is there was kind of an element of modernness to it whereas like also do by all due means again although kind of set in a fairy tale world because it had links to kind of stuff that we could relate to like labyrinth and everything like that it kind of came to life for us a little bit more so i agree as well that perhaps my favorites were in the present because they become naturally become the most relatable. Although we spoke about how we're not that au fait with Arthurian legend, the scenarios in which things are happening, we can relate to slightly more, or at least, you know, recognise it within our lifetime. So again, mirroring what you were saying, Kim, about Jack and Brad and the music at uh, the musician, that would be a different story. The magician, very lovely. It wasn't kind of clouded in the stuff that we didn't understand because really it was just about love between these two people and, you know, the magician that uh, recognises that. And we all recognise the character Merlin anyway as well. I think that was kind of very stripped back of any fancy cleverness. So that's probably why we also were quite emotionally connected to it. I did actually quite like Flat White. I know it was kind of a bit surface. It was, but it, 
that's kind of why I liked it. I, you know, it's kind of like very surface books that you're just like, you devour and you enjoy the characters within it because you're like, oh, this is silly, but I like it. So lighthearted kind of fun with that one. I would say surface is maybe doing this story like a disservice. I think they are like wickedly, like there is, there is cleverness in them and there is a message in that kind of book and I think that there is a message in Flat White but I agree like it's it's definitely more um palatable like fluffy kind of like eating a donut that's secretly healthy um that's kind of like that's do they you know, exist like, I would like them I, I mean I'm sure they yes, do but you know what I mean like it's like just onion rings covered in chocolate <laughs> <laughs> hiding your veggies oh. in 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 the nice food like it is just it, it's silly but it's still quite clever I think well I think the thing with Flat White was that it seemed like it was almost not as deep as some of the others because it was sandwiched between some that were quite alternative and yeah, it was it was a distinct story exactly, style yeah. bookmarked by other bookended by other things, and I think that made it stand out and possibly didn't do it justice. Yeah, and I think um, what I said at the beginning as well about the intricacies of some of the kind of like references and everything are lost on us. So there probably was more cleverly thought out character choices and the dynamics between them and everything that were probably lost on us but yeah and I and I think it's just the idea of it being set in a coffee shop that's very you know of the the woman seeking uh the man and being besotted by you know it's all those kind of tropes of that that kind of literature so um but then I think that was needed because Mm. some of these were so intense heavy and and also made me feel like like we said like almost guilty that we weren't as au fait with you know the references and everything whereas this you could just enjoy for the for the story of what it was yeah so i did i did enjoy that one i did too i also i had sorry i had a moment with flat white where it's i'd kind of got to flat white and i'd been thinking when's the lady of schlock gonna rock up because i like her like i i like the tennyson poem i you know i like the artwork that surrounds the lady of schlock i was like when's she gonna rock up and then i think it's in some of the opening paragraphs of flat white where she says something like i was turned to the coffee machine at the time but i could see him in the chrome um like while she's making she was like i was just focusing on making steaming the milk and i could see him reflected and i was like oh there she is and then I was proven right when she says that she is that person. And I was like, oh, I get it. And I felt very clever. So can, I enjoyed can you show that. Us, can you just show us how you clean the machine again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there we go. Thanks. Good. Well, good. that is how you clean a nozzle, but all right. I know. <laughs> good flat white gestures right there. <laughs> Were there any others um, from the present section, section that you particularly liked, Alex? that we haven't really referenced or spoke about in detail um i noticed no one is choosing the baseball one yeah just no i i don't know if it's because the characters that were telling the story are just so like i would never pick up a book that has anything to do with anything they were talking about Mm. or watch a film or or whatever it might be that's to do with a kind of baseball player, base, baseball player that is in the shadow of his father. Like mm. it's, it's just not of interest to me. So I feel like it was a story that has been told a million times without the references to Excalibur. I felt like it was a un- like uh, an American story in a way yeah. that didn't translate. Like the whole, a lot of this 
the point of this anthology is how these supposedly very English stories can translate into all these different things, which I think is true. But that was like, I just don't think anyone outside of America really understands baseball. Um, but that I was like, I get this story. I see what's happening. It's a very enjoyable B movie that you watch when you're a bit hungover. But like, I was like, it doesn't, it doesn't translate to me because like you say, Alex is so far removed from anything that we're ever experiencing without an emotional core that I felt connected to in a way that the other ones where they were removed from what I was experiencing, there was an emotional core that I felt attached to about like identity and, and, and like pride and stuff, which I just didn't have with that. Yeah. I think it would be a, it would be a film with Adam Sandler in that I have no interest <laughs> in watching. <laughs> yeah. It, it, fe- it felt very movie-esque and it felt like a movie we've all seen. I enjoyed I, the first one about with that had all the artifacts. I enjoyed the way it was, it was done and I think it could have been really good but it did get overly long and confusing and I think they try to fit too many elements of the story into one short story so that was a bit clumsy um heartbeat I I know you really liked it Kim I I wasn't a fan and the main reason I wasn't a fan was for the same reason that I wasn't necessarily a fan of the baseball story which the title of which I don't know and I think it was because both both tried to make Excalibur into an item with similar power and it it didn't translate exactly as I felt like. I, I think um, Hartby did it better, but it just kind of, it felt like a very literal, like, we need an object of power that will make everything better. Here it is. My favourites were, were Flat White, again, because it was, I, I just enjoyed it. I think it was well done. Um, and the fact that it, she chose, again, to, ch- to change her destiny as Elaine in the one of the stories in the first half did as well. Um, and Once Them and Future Us, I thought had real potential to be something longer. I don't think being a short story did it justice. I think it could have been an entire book. I could have kept re- reading that. I was so invested in it like it was one of the stories that i most wanted to because i had to stop reading it halfway through and it was i was like itching to get back to it in a way that i hadn't really been for some of the other ones yeah it really really grabbed me yeah it was good so that leaves future which is the last section of the book and it's also the shortest because it only has three stories so um we've already alluded to the fact that white hemp and sleeves was fucking batshit (laughs) um what did you think of the other two because this was the section that had my favorite in it um i was surprised i was prepared to love little green men by alexander chi and maybe not love a shadow and amber by sylvia moreno garcia because i have read both those authors before and i've loved alexander chi's book um the queen of the night and i didn't not love but didn't quite connect to uh, the Sylvia Moreno Garcia book. And yet I found myself most connected to A Shadow and Amber, which is, again, it's The Lady of Shalot, which is probably why, because I, I do really like her. And I felt a little bit um, lost with the little green men story, probably because of the sci-fi element, but also I was just, I was confused and not super into it. And it might be that I was coming off the back of, so it get, the, the order goes Shadow and Amber, White Hemp and Sleeves, Little green men. So I might have been having a little bit of whiplash from white hemp and sleeves batchittery, but um, the shadow and amber was so fully realised. This perfect kind of like 
captured in a globe story like you could hold it in your hand and you could see it all the way around and see every visual and really understand it and it kind of like it echoed what the story was about in the way that it was so perfectly constructed and that is something that um that Sylvia Moreno Garcia is is given is that uh, like is credited with is is a really incredible construction of narrative like she's incredibly good at playing with different narratives and stuff but that was that was my favorite in that section and I was surprised by that um but no disrespect to Alexander Chi I still love you so (laughs) he is feeling personally victimized I'm sure he is (laughs) yes um yeah, Alex, I could see you emphatically nodding along when Kim is talking about A Shadow in Amber. Um, I guess you agree. <laughs> yeah, I think it was my favourite one out of the whole anthology, actually. I think because there were others that obviously we've spoken about that I really enjoyed, but I feel like weren't necessarily all suited to the short story format. Like, not because I necessarily needed more from them, but just kind of... They were almost, a lot of them were trying to squeeze in beginning and middle and end into this one uh, short period of time of the short story. Um, Whereas I just feel like A Shadow in Amber was perfectly formed. It's everything I needed it to be. I don't feel like I needed to understand or know the characters from the legends in order to enjoy this story. I felt it was kind of both present and obviously a little bit of kind of like sci-fi-esque with the connecting into memories it was very black mirror which is probably why i enjoyed it as well i just think it was beautifully formed so i do think a shadow in amber was actually my favorite out of the whole anthology it was mine as well yeah wow yeah so i i think we can all say that we enjoyed that one and the other stories in this Little Green Men sort of lost its way a bit. I, so weirdly, um, Sergei and the Green Knight was one of the few stories I did know, uh, and then I was like, "No, I don't like. <laughs> I don't like the way they've done this one." And yeah, um, whatever it was, landing White hemp and sleeves, landing on the moon of Venus in the body of a metal snake, trying to beat your former oh, dead God, self to the so top. Weird. Really, really, oh. really did not get that one at all. It was the kind of one that you'd expect someone to bring into a creative writing lecture, Alex. You might remember these kind of people. Um, yes, it, I do. And then they'd be like, "I've written this really like it's really challenging," and then the lecturer would just be like, "It's just shit. <laughs> it's it's just, you've it overthought was, it." Yeah, it was you've like over, fan fiction kind overblown of overblownness. And yeah. yeah, yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't the one. Um, so I was going to ask about our least favorite, but <laughs> I think we can all agree that was not top of our list. No, um, not at all. That one and. Uh, Sir Writer of the Long Title, which I won't go into <laughs> again. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I feel like I want to go back and reread the first couple because I just, I don't think I, because they came first and maybe they weren't necessarily what I was expecting from the blurb, I probably am judging them in fairly. Mm. Also, the, the author, Ken Liu, all I can hear in my Ken head. Lee. <laughs> Ken Liu. Ken Liu. Ken Lu, Ken Lu, Ken Lu. And that is literally all that's in my head. Unexpected. Unexpected musical <laughs> interlude there. I You're welcome. To, I have to say, though, that saying that there is a least favourite, like, I enjoyed reading it all the way through. So there were some that I didn't get, but I like, I think that's on me. Like, I don't, I don't necessarily think that any of them were badly written or are bad stories. I think that just 
with any anthology there are going to be stories that you don't like as much as others or that aren't right quite like don't quite hit your personal speed and i'm sure different people will find different merit in all of them but these are our opinions so did you find when you're reading the collection of stories some might call it an anthology not i uh there are any recurring themes that surprised you so obviously when you think of arthur you think of certain things like chivalry and you know um courtly love and all that kind of thing but was there anything that you were like oh i'd never considered that in in the the canon of arthur folklore that you saw again and again for example i've just written down here Arthur is a big shady hypocrite because certainly <laughs> certainly in the first section I felt like there was a lot of hate coming Arthur's way and also in the uh in a few stories in the present section he was kind of a douche canoe he was a bit of a douche canoe he was a bit he seemed to, there were various stories where he came across a bit weak a bit certainly hypocritical in his treatment of uh, Guinevere and, and Lancelot I think because um, she was like but you've been fucking loads of other women he's like no that's fine I am the king of England and well yeah hello patriarchy Every king ever. <laughs> yeah and considering this was a sto- collection of stories about a revered mythological character I didn't necessarily expect as much of that as there was, which is not to say it was bad. It just wasn't unexpected. What did you guys think? Yeah, I don't think he was actually as present. And maybe, again, it's because I'm just missing him being present in the stories without being called Arthur, maybe. I don't think he was as present as I was expecting. There was much more Lancelot than Arthur, I feel. And I also was surprised by the lack of magic. Mm. Because I do feel that so much... And again, it just might be my preconception because Merlin is a character that I have heard of so often and appears in so much um, that I assumed there would be more in relation to that there was much more about love Mm. than i was expecting yay love yay love i noticed an ongoing theme about kind of like the the slipping of time like the way that time can kind of mess with you or the the way that time isn't linear um and also heritage or uh like not necessarily like respecting your elders but like the importance of tradition and heart and like not letting not letting go of the old ways but not being stuck in the old ways i saw that quite a lot through and um i thought that that was more about the anthology and less about necessarily arthur um in that i I felt like this anthology was was trying to was doing what it was trying to set out to do which was like drawing on things that touched on old themes but emphasized the the things that uh maybe appeal to people who aren't us like for us the thing that we know about arthur is arthur because he's the the king and we're supposed to be like he's the best and woohoo but like probably to everyone who is not you know white and british arthur's a arthur is a douche canoe like most white british people are heard this expression before and you all both said this twice (laughs) douche canoe get on the douche canoe it is my i love it it is my new favorite thing (laughs) insult of choice today don't ask me why Um, the title of this episode is going to be king arthur is a douche canoe (laughs) i where is the lie um but yeah i think like much like pretty much every other british white guy in history probably to everyone else he's a bit of a dick like simple as and you know patriarchy etc 
so I liked I liked the sort of emphasis less on Arthur and more on the feeling of the the um the stories that it was it felt like people who had read these stories and found the thing that appealed to them in them however small that might be and I think we've talked about this with like other things that we have talked about where we have felt a connection to them it's it's taking the thing that resonates with you and for most of that it seemed to be the importance of tradition bravery and like heart do you think with the once present future thing do you think that was the right structure for this because to me i think it would have been stronger if they'd started with future or present because i think past gave you too much of what you expect from an authorian selection of stories i agree I agree. I liked the structure, but I agree with you 100% that I thought starting in the past was too close. And it did, that. It, you know, we've talked about it already. It confused us all because we were like, oh, I'm supposed to know more than I do. And I think that some readers might have been put off by that. So I agree. Like, I liked it, but I didn't think it worked that way. Yeah, I think um, grouping it by time was a clever idea i don't know how else you may group it unless it would just be like an anthology straight through of just different stories rather than not grouping it at all and i suppose that you need some grounding of where you are and where you're starting from but perhaps yeah switching it on its head and making it the other way around like you say would be it would have been a cleverer thing i think i think yeah it it would have been more of what we were expecting from the blurb and would have thrown us into this crazy world straight away so i wonder why the choice was chronological because it's almost like nothing else had those rules yeah yeah so especially with the theme that kim has just talked about with things slipping and jumping and and it also felt like those were always going to be the hardest stories to do with this message um and i i think like i can understand maybe you want to usurp the idea that these people didn't exist in in the past because they did um by these people i mean gender bent race bent lgbtqia plus um per the message of the the blurb like there is an idea that anyone who was not white and heterosexual did not exist in the past which is obviously bollocks um so i understand like wanting to go in guns blazing and be like oh hey by the way they do but at the same time you might have i don't know got a little bit further with some more reluctant readers by starting in the modern era or the future ease them in so to speak but maybe that wasn't what they wanted to do maybe they wanted to challenge people from the out i think maybe it's just down to that choice of first story which was contemporary with arthur Mm. and when you are reading a book of retellings yes it's a it's a story from a different character's point of view but it wasn't a retelling it wasn't a a reimagining of of the events of the myth so yeah right so we're gonna have a break we're going to top up our glasses um alex might make a slightly weaker fake gin um (laughs) and we'll be back afterwards to talk some more about sword stone table So we're back from our break and uh, I think it's time that we check in with how we're finding our drinks. So Alex, how is the the seed lip? It's very tasty. Like I said, I've made it a little bit too strong, but I would recommend as a non-alcoholic gin alternative. Are you sure it's alcoholic? 
I know I am. I no, I did actually. I did go check. I did actually go check because I was a little mm. bit worried. I, no, I think it's it really tastes like you are having one, um, mm. and you won't feel like you're just having. Because I do think that non-alcoholic drinks that are like marketed as like a sophisticated adult drink just can be so sugary and just gross, and it's like might as well just have I don't know some squash. So, um, but no, this this feels sophisticated and adult. Very I would nice. recommend. Good. Yeah, finding a convincing fake booze is always tricky. Mm. So, it seems like you have done well in that respect. Um, and Kim, how is your, um, I forgot what it's called, red wine. How's your red wine? How's you, your pointy you, dicks? You forgot. Pointy dicks. <laughs> you forgot what it's called because I said it differently every time. So the uh, yes. Gaylac, I think that was a, that was a fourth. Way. How is this spelt? How are you reading? How is G A I double L A C? So it Gaylac. could be. So it could be because it's not quite Gallic, but it's, it's not. Like, it's I, th- like, I feel like I feel like, like there's a French Gallac pronunciation. There's Jalac. It's like it's like shellac nails, isn't it? Is but there's an I in French, there, so it's Gylac. Gylac, like lilac, but <laughs> yeah. But then it's okay. a double L, so it's Gylac. So I'm going with Gallac for now. Um, Gaylac, my balls. <laughs> It's very drinkable. It's very. Uh, it's the fact that it's the sea. It's the medium bodied. Like it just is going down like squash. It is tasty. Like it's a bit sweet. I'm getting a bit like fuzzy teeth, but it's just fine. It's good. There's not a lot to say. It's using very. You're using very middle of the road, but positive adjectives. Yeah, that's the thing. It is middle of the road, but positive. It's unremarkable, but drinkable. And my um. Mm, folklore is fine it's not i won't i don't think i'll remember it after this night not necessarily because i will be forgetting this evening but because <laughs> it's just not going to stick in my memory as as a particularly memorable wine it's inoffensive probably slightly less enjoyable than kim's because it's taken me a while to drink it but it's okay and when we come to do our how does it pair with the book at the end I think it's pretty bang on. But (laughs) (laughs) we have to talk about the book a bit more before we wrap up this evening, which is, again, Swordstone Table, the collection of Arthurian retellings. Um, So which of the stories that we discussed in the first half of the show do you think was the most unexpected retelling? Are we taking white hemp and sleeves just fucking off the table? Yeah, because because that was just... uh, Yeah, take it. it That was going off there. (laughs) It was a clusterfuck of what the hell... Uh, so yeah, we're going to leave that one alone. <laughs> it's hard to answer this question because, as we discussed, our knowledge of the legends is quite slim. So I don't. I kind of went into it not expecting much anyway. I think Jack and Brad and the Magician was unexpected in that I'm sure there was more references than just Merlin. And similarly, A Shadow in Amber, I'm sure there was more interesting references than the ones that we picked up on. But I think for those two, and probably why I enjoyed them the most, was because I don't feel that they necessarily were as strongly connected to some of the stories that I know of the legends. And so in which case they were unexpected. I didn't expect to, you know, hear a story about connecting into memories and then finding out that the guy that we're learning about is like killed in, a, I think it's a motorbike accident or something like that. 
you know, that, that felt very kind of disconnected from what I assumed it would be. And similarly, just the reference to Merlin and him wanting to, you know, help the love that these two people shared yeah I think they were unexpected because they were just wonderful stories within themselves that I didn't necessarily get the connection to but yeah I think that's a hard question to answer when you go into something without any kind of preconceptions anyway I actually think the the one that I expected least was the first one with the one to Shikardi because as we discussed earlier it wasn't a retelling and I just felt it was as though someone had said create a series of stories about different characters in in Arthurian legend, which was not what I had understood the, the brief to be for this collection. So when I started reading it, I was like, "What? This isn't as it wasn't different enough." And that yeah. was what was unexpected. Um, yeah, I, I had the same terms... moment. I I checked the blurb when I started reading. I was like, "Did I did I miss sell this book to you guys?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So from that perspective yeah that was the most unexpected um and then just in terms of the treatment of the story i think there were some that were what i would expect from a retelling and there were some that weren't obviously white hemp and sleeves was just absolutely batshit um i can't get over it it's it's so fucked up it's not even the ones whatever it's called baseball man no black diamond <laughs> you know <laughs> which was just like why have you chosen to do this? Mm. Um, out of everything. Those, out of everything you could have done. Someone just went, I like baseball. Let's make it about baseball. See, and, yeah. that made, like that wasn't unexpected to me. Like I was expecting to read a baseball story with a back called Excalibur. I, I, I don't know. What? <laughs> I don't. I like, why? <laughs> I can't tell you why. Well, partially because it's on the fucking back. Picked up this book. But, oh, yes, baseball, definitely. <laughs> but like... Knowing that it was an anthology by American, like predominantly American living authors, like people who live in America, I was kind of expecting at least one Excalibur based baseball. I don't know why. It just called to me. I agree with you, Sam, though, about the Once in Future Caddy, where I was. It wasn't anything wrong with the story. It just wasn't what I was expecting from the book. The two that I found the most surprising were The Keystone and Flat White. Um, in the sense that the keystone was just really creepy and like upsetting and it played with a lot of different elements and I saw what was happening but I was like I was it was just so far removed from how I expected it to be again because I think I was expecting more American based stories and so far up to this point kind of had had quite a few like American based stories um and then flat white just because for all that it seems like quite silly and familiar, like for a highbrow anthology retelling with a with a message and a heart and supposed to be like, you know, that there's a social complexity about that that what they were trying to do with this anthology. It what I wouldn't have gone to Coffee Shop AU. I just wouldn't have gone there and I loved that someone did. Like I just loved that. But I was surprised and it was the first Lady of Shalot one, at least the first one that I was properly like, oh I see what's happening here. Which again, like even though that was a story that I knew and enjoyed I kind of wondered whether that would even make the cut because I guess like Tennyson, it, it's made so famous by Tennyson rather than like the original 
stories, I guess. And so I was like, it's oh, maybe it's, it's like, almost already a retelling. That's exactly what I was about to say. It's already, it's already been done. Um, <laughs> but so, um, I was kind of pleased and yeah, it felt very unexpected. And also it was one that was, it's set in London. Um, yeah, it felt, it felt London. Mind you, a couple of they them did. were a couple of them were set in London. Yeah, like, definitely mentioned London, as did um, once them and Future Us. I think yeah, it was. but it yeah. was it was the first one to my mind that had and like in in the present and again because I was expecting this to be a broadly modern and future retellings, probably from anywhere other than the UK because. That's it felt like kind of the point. I was both surprised to have any story set in the UK and surprised to have it be that story. Um, it it felt unique in a way, partially because it played on the fact that that kind of rom com narrative is is supposed to be so like overdone and 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 lowbrow, but actually in the context of this world and these stories it was quite unique <laughs> you could i mean you could argue though that flat white as much as we enjoyed its frothiness literally <laughs> um it's it's not really diverse in its retelling i mean it's a modern day version of the love dynamic but it's just and elaine a, a woman a, does, a, a yeah. woman named elaine in a coffee shop well, there's the, the but then the, she changes the ending. That's yeah, the point. Yeah, changes it's the meant ending to be also, like feminist retelling. I, I guess. Yeah. I thought, well, there's also the bisexuality of Lancelot. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, oh yeah, of course. The question of whether they should be a thruple. Um, yeah. Which I was like, I'm sorry, but that's what I want to read next. Is <laughs> Lancelot, Arthur, and Guinevere as a thruple? Yeah. I feel like they missed a trick there, but maybe that was kind of the point. But yeah, I, I. I thought the same thing alex where i was i was questioning it and then i was like well first of all is this me assuming a lot about elaine the narrator based on my own experiences um and then the more i was reading into it the more i was like no this is really questioning like this is questioning assumptions that's kind of its point it's like it's questioning what you are assuming about people because she is making these um decisions and narratives based on what she thinks how she thinks the story is going to go um, and actually, like, there, there were quite a lot of upsets, which is what, to an extent, allowed her to choo- choose not to participate and take herself out of those assumptions of how a story is supposed to go. Um, and I also thought that it was quite a, uh, an interesting look at, um, toxicity in relationships that, again, was done in a kind of frothy way. Um, but actually did tackle something quite important and serious that is hard to tackle. In any conversation. Yeah. I I suppose what it is, is that I think I've heard those voices quite a few times because we spoke about the familiarity of it. Whereas the rest of the stories, I would say, I haven't heard that voice Mm. amplified as much. But that might also be just a reflection on the the kind of books I digest. (laughs) Well, I think that's the thing. It was the most, um, for us, it was the most familiar in in a modern sense. And were there any characters in the stories that you or not even in the stories were there any characters that you were excited to see were there any characters that you didn't see that you were expecting to and were there any that you would have liked to hear more from because i felt alex you touched on this earlier there was a shit ton of lance a lot and not much of any other knights mm-hmm. at all mm-hmm. and it felt like that would have been more interesting to hear more from the people who 
hadn't hadn't been as a part of the main part of the narrative as much. So I was I was expecting more of that and less less Lancelot and Guinevere. Yeah, I agree. I feel Lancelot, Merlin, Guinevere, they were our kind of leading connections throughout all of the stories, not all of them, but predominantly. But I also don't, again, I don't know if that's down to my lack of knowledge of the characters and the stories and whether they're just the buzzwords for me. So um, that's probably why they stuck out for me. I think it comes back down to, like I said, I was expecting more magic and I kind of would have welcomed slightly more magic, I think. I think especially the kind of um, present, they were so grounded in what we know to be real. I think actually there could have been something really cool set in the present day that embraced those themes more. Yeah, the only one that really did was the... Well, there were a few kind of hints of it, but um, Brad and Jack, was it? And the the magician had some more magic in it, I guess. But um, yeah, it's a good point. I don't think there was enough Morgan Le Fay Mm. or Mordred. Mm. There weren't enough baddies. Mm. Yeah, that's true. They were all quite good guys. Or not so good good guys. There were many lashings of Arthur. You guys, though, both sort of said we saw a lot of Guinevere, which is true. We saw a lot of her. We didn't didn't see a lot from her. We didn't hear from her at all, I don't think. Like, we didn't get a Guinevere's side of the story. It's a very good point. And Mm. I was genuinely expecting a Guinevere's side of the story, and I didn't get it, and I was surprised. And maybe, you know, maybe it's been done in in another anthology that I haven't read that and everyone was like, oh, don't give a shit about Guinevere because she's boring. But I actually was like, well, you don't... I, I've never heard her fucking side of the story. I just see her, like, she just gets maligned for being either snobby or slutty. Like, those are her, like, two representations, basically. Or, like, pure as the driven snow and completely misunderstood, which is the other one. And it's like, I would have liked to hear from Complex Guinevere rather than watch Guinevere be either, still kind of be the angel in the house or Slutty McSluttingson. We're not slut shaming Guinevere. No, but this book is sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of Elaine. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of Elaine. But no Guinevere. Like, there was a lot of men. Yeah, like, come on. Which. Which brings me to the final question for the night, which is that this anthology was, uh, I believe, in the in the foreword, it kind of it talked about where are the queer voices, where are the the voices of color in the in these stories. We are going to create them. And do you think that this anthology did the job that it was setting out to do in diversifying the stories around Arthur? Because I don't think it did it as well as it could have done. I was more excited by the blurb than I was by the actual stories. Yeah, we. I think we all went in with a greater expectation of hearing those voices and seeing them come to life than was necessarily represented. And I don't think you can necessarily put that down to our lack of understanding of uh, or knowledge of Arthurian legend, because actually... It, it would have been more useful, actually, to have no understanding of it and just go, wow, isn't this like a diverse group of people telling stories and points of view? And actually, yes, there was different cultures, there was different relationships, dynamics, but there was nothing new 
There was there was nothing groundbreaking about it. I um I don't fully agree. I I do think that it did set out. I I I do think that it did what it set out to do. I think it did tell new and unique voices. Like they are ultimately retellings. There is supposed to be an element of retelling of it. So like the fact that they might not be groundbreaking is partially because of that. And I I did I did feel like I was seeing things from completely different perspectives, and being let into perspectives that I wouldn't see but finding myself connected to them regardless that being said it felt like it could have delivered more or to put a more kindly spin on it um it felt like it was just dipping the toe in like it was opening the door to this which I think feels more true like I don't think that this has set out to be the anthology to end all anthologies of queer Arthur retellings. I think this is set out to be the first anthology of queer Arthur retellings. I think this is set setting out to be like showing that it can be done and that it should be done and that there is an interest in it, which I do think it has done and has actually made me more interested in reading them. So in many ways, I do feel like it has achieved its goal. Also, perhaps, you know, the the story that we spoke quite highly of in the future, um, Shadow Shadow in Amber, because we felt it was very complete as a short story within itself. And it did a really good job. Whereas so many of them spent a lot of time kind of setting up how you might feel about these characters and who they are and what you know, what they're grounded in, be it culture or whatever. And so actually, unfortunately, the authors had to spend a bit of time giving the reader that grounding Mm -hmm. because these stories are so underrepresented. Mm -hmm. So underrepresented. And so maybe you're right, Kim, maybe they are the the setup before the leap into more in-depth stories. Yeah, like if they didn't, if they didn't have to do that for us, white people then maybe we would see we would see more depth of the actual story i like i say i thought there was plenty depth in a lot of the stories but i I definitely see where you guys are coming from don't get me wrong um that it wasn't like quite as revelatory as we were maybe hoping for it to be but my glass half full looking at that is that i i definitely feel like this sparked an interest in me told stories from a perspective that I wasn't expecting that I didn't know revealed parts of different cultures that I didn't know but also connected to a part of my culture that I did vaguely know and and kind of showed that through line and showed how stories can be retold and 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 connected again um and made me want to read more and made me hope that they publish more because I would definitely pick it up it's it's a really it's a tough ask i think of 16 stories especially when arthurian legend is legend and there are different versions of it and people keep adding to it over time and it it is a tricky thing to do i think and and it doesn't matter which story you're telling if you just go make it as diverse as possible there will still be people who are not represented in the stories that you are telling because the world is far too big to fit into what 300 pages of of stories um but i feel like there weren't enough stories in here that provoked a new way of thinking about the myths themselves which is what i was hoping for so yeah i mean there were a few that did 
and there were definitely a few that did um particularly with regard to queer and uh, queer relationships and and female characters in the original myths i think that's what they did well i don't necessarily think that all of the retellings translated in the way that people were intending them to. Sometimes it felt like it was just being, it was the same story that had just been transplanted for the sake of it rather than trying to do anything different. I don't think that it didn't achieve what it was trying to do in telling these stories, but I room for improvement, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> B minus, C plus. I hope there will be. I hope there will be many more of these kind of anthologies. Like, like which again, like I say, is I think the point of what they were aiming for, um, at least from my understanding of it. And and the the goal is important. I think whether it hit it or not, the fact that this was created is uh is great. Um, the fact that it got published is a step in the right direction. Yeah, <laughs> and the fact that you know this included it wasn't just stories about diversity it was from a diverse range of authors with Mm -hmm. you know own voices and different backgrounds and things like that so that was we should respect it for that in itself but yeah sometimes i just feel like it it didn't go far enough and unless it is the case of white hemp and sleeves in which case it went too fucking far (laughs) (laughs) but hey you can't you can't please everyone and apparently you just can't please me so, speaking of which, it's time to talk about the wines and the non-wines that we've had tonight, and also to give the um, Swordstone table a rating out of grapes, as we do at the end of each episode. So, um, I'm going to go first with the wine, because I can. Uh, so, the um, Folklore Tinto Peninsula, uh, pff, it was alright. I, I will not be buying it again uh, for any specific purpose, other than it might be on offer one day. So, <laughs> cooking wine, maybe a cooking wine. I think it's too expensive for a cooking wine. Oh, it's a tenner. Yeah, mm. too expensive for a yeah. cooking wine. So, um, two point five, very middle of the road. Kimberly, how about you? Um, I'm give the uh, Gaelic, Gaelic, <laughs> Gaelic, Gulak. Different again, <laughs> Gawain. Um, Gawain the gold wine. I'm going to give a three. I would drink it again. I have enjoyed it. It's not been outstanding. It's also not been terrible. Like, I, I have definitely enjoyed it. It was either six or eight pounds. I would only buy it again if it were on offer. Same these. It's not going to be like a firm favourite. It's just good, fine wine. Fine in the uh, lowercase sense, not in the like fine sense. <laughs> fine. Three grapes. Three grapes. Three grapes for the fine wine. Fine wine. Fine wine. And Alex, what would you give your seed lip gin that is not gin? Um, as far as non-alcoholic boozers go, I'm going to give it a four. Mm. Um, obviously, I would rather gin, but if one is not drinking for a variety of reasons, but still wants to feel like they are partaking and they're not just drinking water or coke or fizzy or dandelion and burdock stuff, <laughs> yeah, or coating their teeth in sugar. I would highly recommend this. It is a bit pricey, though. It is like 20-something a bottle, which is like the same as a bottle of gin. And I feel... A bottle I of do expensive feel... gin as well. Well, yeah. if you want to feel like you're experiencing it, then the price tag <laughs> must have come with that. <laughs> well, yeah, but like... But you get know, no fucking like, booze. Yeah, it's like, um, you know, decaf coffee. It's like, why would you splash out? There's no point. So I would recommend, you know purchasing it and having it on the shelf maybe for christmas time or a special occasion if you're not drinking but you want to 
feel fancy. But as far as the non-boozes go that pretend to be booze, this is up there. So more successful on the non-booze front this week than the booze front, which is possibly the first time that we've had this. (laughs) And now it's time to rate the book, which is, again, Swordstone Table, Old Legends, New Voices, edited by Swapna Krishna and Jen Northington, with stories by Alexander Chi, Preeti Chiba, Roshani Chopsky, Steve Doyle, Maria Dabna Headley, Asma Zenat Khan, Daniel M. Lavery, Ken Liu, Sarah McLean, Sylvia Moreno Garcia, Jessica Fummer, Anthony Rapp, Wabashig Rice, sorry, Alex Segura, uh, Nisi Shaw, and S. Zainab Williams. Let's go in reverse order. Alex, what's your rating for Sourcing Table? Um, I'm going to give it a solid three. It wasn't groundbreaking for me, but I am a fan of an anthology and some of the stories really grabbed me. If, if I had just read the blurb, I would be like, wow, that is going to be a winner for me. So I expected to give it more great, but I am still happy with what I read. So I'm going to give it a three. Um, I think I gave it three on Goodreads, but I wanted to give it 3.5, um, which is to say that an anthology is always kind of maybe brought down by the stories that you don't necessarily enjoy. It's hard to rate. Um, and for all the reasons that we discussed, it wasn't like my favourite uh, it was up against some challenges, both in genre and in um, not quite, as we've discussed, like necessarily hitting the mark in all in all the ways that we wanted to or, or delivering. But I still thought that I, I really enjoyed it more in some ways than I expected to, knowing that I didn't know anything about Arthurian legends, really. And also that sci-fi fantasy is not my happy place. So 3.5, I think, is it's a, it's a very personal rating. I think that it is... 3.5 greats for me personally someone else might read the same stories and fucking love them obviously but that is from a non-sci-fi reader that makes sense um i also gave it three on goodreads but i'm going the other way and i wanted to give it 2.5 um because i did struggle to read it potentially because i am not that enthralled by arthurian myth potentially because of some of the stories and the way it got off to quite a slow start so i i will match it perfectly with my wine which seems appropriate because i enjoyed both about the same amount which is to say they served a purpose um and there were highlights and there were less highlights (laughs) lower lights if you will so yeah 2.5 from me for swordstone table middle of the road so that is the end of the episode, but thank you for listening to us uh, talk shit about Arthur for an hour. Um, we'll be back in a month's time with a brand new episode for you. But in the meantime, don't forget to check us out on social media. We're on Instagram at Grape Culture Podcast. We're on Twitter at Grape Culture Pod. And we also have a website, which you can go and check out, which we sometimes occasionally deign to update. And it is grapeculturepodcast.co.uk. Um, if you're listening on an Apple device, please give us a rating and leave us a review because we love to know what you think. Uh, but in the meantime, We have many other episodes for you to go and listen to should you choose to. So thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.